0: Hi, and welcome to Talking Tax, a podcast brought to you by Bloomberg Tax. Today, we're sitting down with a group of tax practitioners who are members of Bloomberg Tax's advisory board to discuss the new tax law. Today's roundtable will focus on the legislation recently signed into law by President Donald Trump and its effects on state, federal, and international tax planning. Also joining to help in our discussion is Laura Davison, a federal reporter with Bloomberg Tax, and Colleen Murphy, a news editor on the international tax team. I'm your host Sony Kassem, a reporter with Bloomberg Tax, and I'm excited you're here with us today.
1: Hey, my name is Lisa Starcheski, and I'm with Buchanan Ingersoll and Rooney. Uh, I focus my practice on business taxation, especially uh, the taxation of pass-through money.
2: Hi, Hi, I'm uh, Bill Alexander. I'm with Skadden Arps. Uh, I mostly work in the
3: corporate M and A area. Hi, I'm John Harrington. I'm with the law firm of Dentons, and I tend to work in the international area.
4: Hi, Richard Franklin, and I'm a trust and estates lawyer in Washington, D.C. I'm Joe
5: Huddleston. I'm with Ernst Young, LLP and their national tax office here in Washington.
0: We asked Lisa Storcheski and Bill Alexander about tax planning opportunities for businesses, corporations, and pass-throughs. Here's what they have to say. I think
1: everyone knows this, but I think it's very important just to, to think about it for a minute. We have this massive new tax act. It was signed into law December 22nd, and today it's January 9th. So we have all been digesting, reading, thinking, analyzing. We've had two and a half weeks. We've had prior versions, but there are significant differences between those versions and what we ended up with in some instances. And so the point is it's new. It's it's very new. And secondly, we didn't get the benefit of hearings and debates and learning with respect to the intent behind these provisions, the way in which they're intended to be applied. So we don't have the benefit of that process. We don't have a blue book yet. We have legislation that was quickly passed, but is quite impactful and has layers of complexity. So what this means with respect to my answers right now, and I think, you know, everything that we have to say, is that we might be right on right now, but there is a lot of additional guidance to come. Um, there is a lot more thought and time that I know I'm going to give to this and I know my colleagues are going to give to this. And these answers are going to be fluid. With respect to planning opportunities, I mean, uh, certainly there are opportunities to plan. Um, more of those opportunities will come as time goes by and as we understand more and we learn more about how these provisions interact with each other. Everyone wants to talk about choice of entity as you know a planning opportunity. We get calls from clients on choice of entity literally every day. Um, I personally don't believe, and I haven't talked to many people who believe that we're gonna see this wholesale, you know, conversion to C-corporations. There are still a lot of benefits to operating um, in pass-through form that I think uh, Trump, pun intended, the reduced corporate tax rate. Um, It is still beneficial in many instances to be a pass-through. But there is no question that for people starting new businesses, choice of entity got a little bit more complicated, um, a little bit different than the items we focused on before. Um, In many cases, though, I think that when you do the modeling, staying put is often going to be the right answer. It's just not always going to be the right answer. I think with respect to the pass-through deduction, there's a lot of planning that can happen there. There are going to be ways, I think, to plan into the deduction and out of the wage and qualified property cap. Maybe there can be some restructuring, for instance, of independent contractor relationships, into employment relationships. Um, Real estate businesses are highly impacted, I think, across the board by a lot of these provisions. For that type of business, uh, the business interest limitation may be incredibly impactful. Um, There's going to need to be analysis and modeling about whether a business should elect out of that limitation um, because that needs to be compared, that scenario, with the increased depreciation periods, the loss of bonus depreciation for qualified improvement property. There's a trade-off to the election out of that limitation. So for me, you know, I think it's very important to understand that under the Tax Act there's no quick and easy answer to what should we change, you know, if this and this are true, do we do this? Um, it's more like a matrix. There are a lot of factors. I do think, and I'm sure Bill can expand on this, that in the context of C Corporations, um, certainly the reduced rate is going to you know, um, create some planning opportunities. And we may see some of the tricks of the past to retain earnings in the C Corporation um, and not uh, distribute them out because we'll want to avoid that second level of tax and stay with our 21%. Um, The moral of the story is that at the heart of the opportunity is the need to sit down, every business, to sit down with their tax advisor and talk through the type of business they're in, what their business goals are, the economics of how their business works, and then think about that in the context of all this change and ask questions about, am I best positioned under the new rules?
6: You know, with this corporate rate going from 35 down to 21, what sort of planning um, you know, are, are people starting to talk about? What do, what do people need to consider?
2: What I think they're mostly focused on right now is if they have a multinational business, how to structure that. that their worldwide business, is it configured the right way? And uh, I think that's really where a lot of their intention is going to be. In terms of the attractiveness of uh you know, subchapter C. The rates are lower, but again, there are a lot of things that have changed. I think Lisa used the word modeling, and I think that's really critical. People will be sitting down in front of a spreadsheet and saying, is this good for me? Um, one of the things people have to be mindful of is the fact that it is a lot easier to get into subchapter C than to get out.
6: Um, you know, Lisa alluded to this. You know, matrix of solutions. Um, one of the things that's tricky about this bill is that it's a mix of permanent and temporary. Um, the corporate stuff is all permanent, but of course, you know, nothing is really permanent in the tax code. It can always be changed or repealed or whatever by a future Congress. How do you go about planning when um, these are the rules for now? But in five or six or ten years later, different president, different Congress, um, things could change drastically. How do you advise clients in that world?
1: No question that
6: the fact that some of these provisions
1: uh, expire uh, just adds a layer of complexity to all of it. Um, You know, I think it's important to keep in mind that it it may not be five or ten years before it changes, that actually, you know, it could change as soon as, if if the president changes and we have a new Congress, we could see a change in any of this, including the permanent changes. So you're always kind of dealing with that on some level. Um, You know, I think here, when some of these changes that are sunsetting or expiring, have to do with choice of entity, for instance. I mean, and you're and you're modeling all of this, and you're looking at all of these um, possible solutions, and then you know that one piece of that might go away, which could greatly impact, for instance, the pass-through rate. And you've made a decision. You know, it's difficult. Um, now that might, as Bill pointed out, because it's hard to get out of a C Corp, but it's easier to get out of a LLC or partnership, right? That might be part of your decision. Well, you know, we've got to think about what what happens down the road and what impact that might have on our. Decision today, it just makes the job you know that much harder. Um, it's it's just it's especially difficult to plan, in my opinion, when foundational pieces of your decision making are moving pieces.
2: And then there are some things where, well, you just have to go with what you have. In a sense, the theory behind expensing is that, well, this uh, depreciable property is on sale this year, so buy it now. And if you buy it now, well, you can't have made too bad a mistake, you know. You know how it's going to work out. Um, If you wait, we can't make you any promises.
5: You know, and there's another factor here that I I keep thinking about as we talk about structuring and planning, uh, not necessarily at the federal level, but certainly at the federal level and then throughout all the state entities also, is the the new partnership audit rules that impact all of these discussions because so many of these pass-throughs are structured in partnership structures that are going to have to make substantial changes in how they look really by the end of this coming year they're going to have to have these things in place and and nobody is moving very much in that direction right now at least i don't seem to see it
1: i think everyone is is waiting to the extent that they can for some sort of final guidance with respect to those rules because even deciding how to draft which we've been doing a great deal of um and change your operating agreement is tricky when
6: you're operating in a vacuum and you're not quite sure exactly how these rules are gonna be applied. Joe, you bring up an interesting point just sort of about kind of the uncertainty um, surrounding many parts of the tax code. And even, you know, Lisa was talking about how clients are sitting down and this law is only two and a half weeks old. And states are also sitting down and saying, you know trying to figure out what's the best way for them to react. So I wanted to ask, you know, is it safe to assume that that many states won't follow the full expensing uh, provision just as they decoupled um, from bonus depreciation? Sure. sure, let me
5: give you a little uh, little background on what's going on in the states. Uh, certainly last year and the year before, and while the projections are better this year, one of the key indications, indications for the states is that they have missed their projections. Uh, somewhere close to 30 of the 50 states have substantially missed their revenue projections over the last couple of years. That's causing real problems, so when you add to that what the, what's happening at the federal level, the likelihood that states would not decouple is very small. Some particular states might see a windfall, others might not, depending on repatriation issues, but largely states where they would see a revenue reduction, they clearly are going to decouple, much as they did with bonus depreciation before, both at the expensing level and in depreciation. But I find it very unlikely that states in their current economic situation are going to uh, ride any kind of a bus that results in a reduction in revenue for them.
6: And so, what does that mean for for the pass through deduction? Whether they couple or decouple from that,
5: it, uh, it it clearly is a problem. The states are all over the board on how they treat pass throughs, and uh, so it's it's highly unlikely that the states are going to do anything, as I mentioned before, that negatively impacts their revenue in the short term.
6: So, one of the the political hot button issues as this was moving through Congress, particularly in the House, was the you know what they were going to do with the salts, the state and local tax deduction. So now the conversation, you know, obviously. Ended up with that ten thousand dollar cap, which was pleasing to some, not so much to others. At the state level, they're talking about ways to um, sort of lessen the blow for residents, whether that be um, you know payroll taxes instead of um, income taxes, or creating a charitable deduction to fund public services. You know, does that sound like a viable way to get around this? You know, what do you, how do you see that playing out uh, in the next couple of years?
5: There's a real distinction here between individual citizens of the state. are going to see a direct impact on themselves particularly in those high tax states uh, that we we all know around the country whether it's California New York Connecticut the individual citizens are going to see an impact the state governments on the other hand may not see anything but a, but a marginal impact as a result of that. So there's the real question as between the two. Do the citizens in the state demand some kind of action? Because if you're talking about state revenues as a result of this cap, the, the alteration is going to be marginal.
6: Richard, um, in the bill, we, the estate tax exemptions were doubled, not repealed, as uh, was initially the the game plan. Um, so, what can we expect to see in, uh, in terms of how strategies change in the in the short term, and then also in twenty twenty six when uh, the doubling uh, reverts back to what was previously current law?
4: Great. Well, it, you're right that the the base exemption changed from five million to ten million, as indexed for inflation. So. For an individual, that means $11.2 million is exempt from estate taxes, gift taxes during lifetime, and the GST exemptions also matches that amount. So that's $22.4 million for a married couple. That reduces the number of people subject to the estate tax from 0.02% to 0.01%. In effect, it repeals the estate tax for the vast majority of the population with a caveat as you alluded to that this provision sunsets in 2026 the act leaves the entire estate gift and gst system in place which made it easy for this congress to make the change but it also makes it easy for you know future legislation to unwind these changes or simply leave them as they currently are and they will sunset in 2026. And while it seems like it's impossible to remember before November 8, 2016, the other candidate would have reduced the exclusion amount and increased the estate tax rate. So it's important to keep in mind these changes are really set up easily to um, you know, be changed in the future. But in effect, to get credit for the new $11.2 million, the the new doubling amount from 5.6 to 11.2, the original 5.6 has to be used. So you can imagine that most Americans are not capable of giving away 11.2 million all at once. So this provision is great for the uber wealthy. It's going to make it much more complicated planning-wise for um, for families who are not able to immediately use the exclusion. And in some sense, if they can't do it, it's a it's a use it or lose, lose it system. In 2026, it sunsets. So for those families that can't use it prior to that time, you know, it, it will be in effect illusory and, and somewhat confusing because it makes the planning options more uh, complicated.
7: And John, on the international side, we've talked a lot about planning today and certainly one group that's been paying really close attention as this bill has developed and as it was passed um, is multinational companies. So what should companies with cross-border operations consider as they're crafting a long-term tax strategy?
3: The company needs to decide you know, whether it needs to change its structure, and that can be fundamental changes like where the the, um, the parent company is located, whether it's United States or somewhere, somewhere else. It's also going to mean evaluating or revisiting more minor issues such as whether an entity should remain disregarded or a controlled foreign corporation, a CFC, or whether it should convert. Um, also, you have um, you can have assets such as intellectual property that are held in you know in a particular holding company or are used in a certain way. Then you have to move into more call it transactional issues in terms of looking at what you're doing now. Is there a more favorable way to do it, or is it? or what you're doing now is unfavorable, you need to revisit it.
7: And uh, the European Union members have been pretty vocal about uh, some concerns that they have over these provisions, particularly that base erosion and anti-abuse tax provision, the BEAT. Um, The EU has warned about a WTO challenge over some of the provisions of the bill, saying that it, it could break their trade principles. What do you think is the likelihood of such a case, and and what would the impact of that be?
3: First of all, whether to bring a WTO challenge is ultimately a political decision. A country could have a very strong case and, and think for political reasons, they don't want to bring a, a dispute. They can also, or defer bringing a dispute. They can also have a relatively weak case and decide for dope, domestic consumption or something else, it's worth bringing the, the, the case. And you also have to recognize, I mean, since the Ways and Means Committee the Finance Committee have jurisdiction over trade as well as taxes, presumably they did take a close look at this in terms of feeling comfortable that this is compliant with our trade agreements. But having said that, being someone who on the Hill worked on the, the replacement of the Foreign Sales Corporation the extraterritorial income regime and then replacement of the extraterritorial income regime um uh when I was at Treasury, that I mean the track record of the United States on this isn't good. I mean, each time we seem to think we've found some way to to create an incentive for exports following the rules for consumption taxes without actually having a value added tax or our sales tax. But on um, each time the European countries have brought that under under GATT or under WTO, and and the U.S. has lost that. And the, so whether this is like Roadrunner against you know a Wally Coyote is, remains to be seen.
7: And some countries like China and Australia have been concerned that the reforms in the U.S. could hurt their own competitiveness. And there's been talk about different countries making their own reforms in response to, to what the U.S. is doing. Is there a risk that some of that could clash with what the OECD is trying to do around base erosion and, and profit shifting?
3: I mean, when it comes to BAPS, just two points I make about that. You know, I mean, first, I don't view BAPS as being this principled attempt to change the international tax rules. I mean, countries got together and did what the antitrust rules prevent companies from doing. You know, they saw themselves as losing revenue because of what other countries were doing. You know, they kind of they decided that they couldn't change their own rules without unless other countries tied theirs. And so the United States did participate in, in the OECD, as part of the best process, but that was the executive branch, and it was also the executive branch in a prior administration. The, a lot of these international provisions really were generated, you know, through Congress, which wasn't really part of the best process. Didn't have the same sort of buy-in that you'll see, like in a parliamentary country, where the treasury, you know, the treasury department and the parliament are, are are tied. You know, the, so so I think in that sort of sense, you know, there's not the same buy-in to BEPS that, that would have occurred. Um, and, and also BEPS, I think it's just reaching its natural progression where countries now are starting to implement BEPS, often taking unilateral actions. So I think to a certain extent, this is just kind of returning to the norm. Countries change their tax rules and, and other countries react to that, um, either because they they like or either they don't like something another country did, so they change the rules in response to it, or they really like what a country did, so they need to, to change their rules to correspond to that. So... Each country always changes their rules, saying, yeah, this is going to make us more competitive, but everybody else wants to do the same thing. So,
0: John, you talked a little bit about companies with cross-border um, activity, thinking about restructuring. So now that we have a lower corporate income tax rate of 21%, do you think U.S. companies will consider moving their operations to the United States um, and their intangibles back to the U.S. as well? And then how do you think the new foreign-derived income rules factor into that?
3: I mean, I mean you make a good point. I mean, the corporate tax rate is plainly a lot lower, but you know most companies had effective tax rates below the you know the, the statutory rate. So, in terms of deciding whether your your operations be taxed less in the U.S. than where they are, you'd have to look at not just the lower rate, but also the changes to the tax base, and then also there can be tax cost to moving operations. You know, if you're in a foreign country. Um, There can be an exit tax, you could be recapture of credits if you try to move operations. Some countries tax intellectual property being moved out as well. So if you move intangible property in the U.S., you've got to be pretty sure that you're not going to move it back out. That was true before, it's even more true now. Um, And then second, if you do this to benefit from the foreign-derived intangible income, it also raises the question about how long, you know, how come do you feel that those rules are going to continue to stay there? And it's supposed to come less favorable over time if there are changes to the act to raise revenue or for political reasons this is the one that might be uh, taken into account so even if it's even if it's available now you gotta you don't know how long it would be available and at least in its present form
0: you mentioned a little bit about guilty the global intangible low tax income rules um could there be any unintended consequences of that such as companies wanting to increase their foreign manufacturing operations
3: yeah, and because I mean, you see so the two kind of you know interact between the the, F, the FDII and the in the guilty, and you know just kind of superficially, I mean, you look at say tangible depreciable property. It makes sense to have tangible depreciable property, you know, um, outside the United States because that reduces the potential amount of guilty because that reduces your guilty inclusion. At the same time, you know, tangible depreciable property, you know. It's not helpful from me to have that in the U.S. if it's otherwise qualifying for the FDII because it reduces the amount of your FDII, which is tax favored. So, just at least for a, for a corporation that's subject to both guilty and the FDII, there's incentive for your tangible depreciable property to be outside the United States. But also, you know, corporations and individuals have different incentives as well. You know, guilty is tax favored for domestic corporations. That's not true for for you know, for for individuals, if they own a foreign corporation. So, earning guilty income is a lot harsher on individuals than it is for domestic corporations. So, the incentives are even stronger if it's a if it's an individual owning a foreign corporation than a domestic corporation.
0: Great. So, to wrap up. Um, what aspects of the new tax law do you think have the most staying power, and then what aspects do you think would need to be revised because of unintended consequences?
1: Um, well, I think my answer is that. I I am concerned about unintended consequences because um, I think what is really hard to get your head around is the way in which all of this is going Mm -hmm. to play together. And when you look at any one thing in and of itself, you can say, all right, maybe I can make sense of this. I may need a little bit more guidance to fully understand it or fully apply it depending on the facts, but all right, um, I think I know what they were trying to do. Um, But they did a lot, and they did a lot of different things. And when you look at how it all plays together, I think we are definitely going to have some consequences we didn't intend, they didn't intend. Um, And so I'll tell you that I do think that we are going to have consequences we didn't expect, Um, even just something as simple as business losses. And the fact that they're so limited now out of pass-throughs and that we also have this new interest limitation, um, that all of that's impacting basis. That, you know, when you we have a very complicated set of tax laws, especially, now I won't say especially because we all work in complicated areas, but pass-through taxation is incredibly, um, you know, complex. And what they've done here is add an entire other layer of complexity in hopes of simplification <laughs> and under the guise of simplification.
2: I don't have really good psychic powers, but um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if six to 12 months into the next major recession, we have lost carry backs again. Um, typically, that's something that you get. Until then, it's going to be a little bit rough for struggling businesses. Lost carryback is cash in hand. Uh, it's not just a tax asset. And their competitors are going to have an extra, you know, if they're profitable, an extra 14 cents on the dollar. Uh, so... Uh, this situation may be rough in the short run, but um, if things get really rough for the country as a whole, I wouldn't be surprised to see that uh, return. There will be things to be patched, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go away.
3: Now, I, I think the question kind of has both a political and practical components. I mean, from a political standpoint, they have to be, you know be take into account the fact this was passed with only Republican votes. And so if the Democrats take one or both houses, then you would expect there to be changes over the types of things they've criticized in the bill. From a practical standpoint, you know, again, this sort of, it's an awfully uh, cloudy crystal ball, but, you know, to me, the more novel and the more complicated the provision, the more likely it's going to have un- unintended consequences and need to be tweaked. Um, so there, again, the international area, I see the guilty and the foreign-derived income intangible income and the deemed repatriation provision as being um, areas that probably fall in that category. There's also provisions that probably had conceptual appeal, but I'm not sure the consequences were were fully thought out. There's changes to the constructive ownership rules for controlled foreign corporations, Um, uh, the distinction between liquid and illiquid assets and the deemed repatriation, and the new rules for transfers, valuing intangible assets. I mean, a lot of those seem like conceptual ideas. Turning that into sort of specifics is, is, is going to be kind of an issue.
4: So I'd sort of answer your question in a slightly different way, at least in the context of the, the gift estate the and GST tax system. I think the act sort of demonstrates that they are going to be enduring, that they're not repealed. And if you look at the, the landscape there and historically, the modern estate tax has been around for 101 years and it's been gone for one year, less than 1% out of that period of time. And when you look at first world countries, the United States by some metrics is the most unequal country for income and wealth inequality. So just looking at the landscape to me says the the, the gift estate and GST tax system will endure and some people are, you know, repeal is alluring but I think it's ephemeral and it's imprudent if your idea is you want to preserve family wealth, to rely on the vagaries of you know our government about keeping or not keeping the federal estate tax. And even the carryover basis, there'll be lots of games that people play with increasing the basis of assets, which not only will affect the federal system, but the, the states as well.
5: I think that uh, Lisa began this discussion by, by reminding us all that we're two or three weeks into this. And one thing that I've I believe will endure is that the relative significance of state and local taxes is increased Mm -hmm. uh, both for the individual and for the corporations. And the scattershot approach that the states have always used will continue to be a huge problem for, for both corporate and individual planning. Some of the unintended consequences could well reach into the area of both corporate and individual migration. Do businesses, do individuals stay in the states they're in? Or if there are dramatic shifts in the relative tax burden, uh, do they begin to find other places to have their headquarters or to live? Uh, if you have a uh, effective tax burden in California, 50 or 60 percent, when the same entity can be in Tennessee and have a substantially 30 points less effective tax rate, there's some pretty strong incentives for uh, for both corporate and individual migration. Uh, beyond that, we see some of the impacts at the state and local level can impact how municipalities or governments are able to fund themselves, how they're able to issue bonding, and whether or not The bond companies, the people who are providing public finance, are going to have to make adjustments relative to the calculations that have changed for them. So there are a lot of unintended consequences out there that we're just beginning to come to grips with and just beginning to question. So uh, Lisa's absolutely right. It's early ask these same questions next year.
7: Well, thanks so much, everyone, for taking the time. And uh, we definitely will follow up with you Mm -hmm. as as this all sort of shakes out over the next months and and coming years.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you you for joining us today on Talking Tax. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloomberg Tax and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud to keep up with all the news surrounding the new tax law. Until next time, it's been a pleasure to have you here with us.